Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Monday, December 14th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. A historic day, less than a year after the coronavirus pandemic first took hold, the first doses of a new vaccine made by Pfizer now being distributed and administered across the country. Meanwhile, the COVID-19 death toll growing. American deaths now approaching 300,000 lives lost to the virus as global infections surpass 72.3 million cases. And presidential electors are meeting across the country to formally choose Joe Biden as the nation's next president. This and much more today on You News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. There is finally a sign of hope, what could be the beginning of the end of the COVID-19 pandemic. After a record-breaking effort, the first deliveries of the coronavirus vaccine have now begun as planes and cargo trucks distribute them to locations across the country. Americans expected to start receiving the first doses of the long-awaited COVID-19 vaccine. Healthcare workers, seniors, and first responders among the first to receive the shot. This vaccine met the FDA's rigorous standards for quality, safety, and efficacy. Dr. Robert Redfield, the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, says he accepted a CDC panel's recommendation of the U.S. first COVID-19 vaccine on Saturday night and it was authorized for emergency use on Friday by the FDA. We've worked incredibly hard over many months uh, doing test shipments, uh, improving our shippers, uh, making sure that uh, they can maintain temperature during the entire journey, uh, and we're very happy with the solution. This week, Pfizer shipping 2.9 million doses to all 50 states and U.S. territories. 145 locations are set to receive those vital vials today. But it's a massive effort. Cargo trucks and planes fanning out across the country. The vaccines must be kept at minus 94 degrees Fahrenheit, transported to their destination in specialized boxes packed with dry ice. U.S. Marshals traveling with each shipment and the FAA giving priority to flights carrying the vaccines. We are not done until every American has access to the vaccine, to every American that wants it, receives it. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., President Trump saying most White House staff members will have to wait to receive the vaccine. The president tweeting, people working in the White House should receive the vaccine somewhat later in the program, unless specifically necessary. I have asked that this adjustment be made. I am not scheduled to take the vaccine, but look forward to doing so at the appropriate time. Thank you. This comes after a Trump administration spokesman said that officials in the three branches of government would be among the first to receive it. A new ABC News Ipsos poll found 40% of Americans would take the vaccine as soon as it's available, while 44% say they would wait a little bit before choosing to get vaccinated. And with coronavirus vaccinations now well underway, experts say it'll be well into 2021 before we see some widespread benefits, making restrictions and mask wearing still the most effective way to control the spread. Lorraine Gasteres has the latest on the pandemic here in the U.S. 
to the holidays under the worst scenario. Daily infections at an all-time high. A Thanksgiving surge now in full swing, adding more than a million new infections in just four days. The country now surpassing 16 million cases since the start of the pandemic. Deaths averaging at more than 2,300 a day since the start of December. The nation nearing 300,000 lives lost. The next number of weeks are going to be hell, I fear. So we're begging with people People to please, please, please don't let your guard down. Nationwide, more than 108,000 Americans hospitalized, a 10% increase since the start of December. The medical system being pushed to a breaking point. Healthcare workers, you know, we get it. We, we have to we have to fight. This is a battle. Near the border, El Centro Regional Medical Center setting up an overflow tent outside. We're going to go from 21 patients to 50 patients within a matter of today. We have no more room. Meanwhile, nationwide, more restrictions and possible lockdowns. Bill Gates, a big supporter of the vaccine, weighing in. Bars and restaurants in most of the country will be closed as we go into this wave. And I think, sadly, that's appropriate. New York City today shutting down indoor dining again. Positivity uh, for the coronavirus has increased intensely in New York City and New York State in recent weeks. Hospitalizations, unfortunately, we're seeing a surge of hospitalizations. We've got to protect people's lives. We've got to protect our hospital's ability to save lives. And when it comes to this situation, you've got to start shutting down the most sensitive areas. In California, where 30 million people are under stay-at-home orders, small businesses and restaurant owners in San Francisco protesting the state forcing them to close. And in Colorado, where capacity is being restricted and dine-in service banned, store and restaurant owners suing the state and the governor. Indoor dining has also been prohibited in Pennsylvania and Michigan since the start of the pandemic. One in six restaurants has gone out of business permanently. Andrea, back to you. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report. We need to be very careful during the holidays. And with over 100,000 people hospitalized with COVID-19, the demand for nurses is now greater than ever. Many hospitals are relying on traveling nurses to meet staffing shortages. Their demand increasing by 40% in just the last month, according to the New York Times. Joining me now is Lisette de Gracia. She's an emergency room nurse in St. Paul, Minnesota, working with the agency Fast Staff Travel Nursing. Thank you so much for being with us today, Lisette. And first of all, thank you so much for everything that you've been doing during these intense past couple of months. Welcome. Thank you. So go ahead and talk I to us about the situation at the hospital where you're at right now. What are you seeing there? Um, so what I'm seeing at the hospital that I'm at right now, we're seeing a lot of COVID patients. Um, Minnesota, as we kind of all know, is getting more and more cases on a daily basis. Um, the current hospital that I'm at is closing. Um, and so their staffing is not where it would be if they were staying open. And then the other hospitals in the area are being affected by this as well. Um, so it's kind of, it's not a, it's not a very predictive um, normal situation, but they are working through it and they're doing a wonderful job of that. 
Before the pandemic, there was a known shortage of nurses, but the crisis has only made that situation worse. Let's go ahead and first take a look at this map. The areas in red show an increase of 1000% in requests of travel nurses compared to last year. Locations like Florida, North Dakota and Utah and of roughly 600% in places like Texas in orange. You're based in Minneapolis and you travel to New York City at the beginning of this pandemic for a 13 week assignment, leaving your three children behind, as we saw in those pictures, your three lovely children. So go ahead and talk to us about that experience. Um, New York was it was the first travel assignment I have ever taken. So um, it was a lot of unexpected. It was almost like an, it was a well-oiled machine. There was nurses in and out every day. Um, there was a lot of patients. The ratios were two to three times what they would be um, in a normal emergency room. And I was working in the epicenter of the pandemic at the time. So it was it was interesting. It was eye opening. I learned a ton um, and it was the first time I've been away from my kids for as long as that. So all kinds of emotions and feelings and different things. I'm sure it was also difficult for your children. Now, your second assignment was in Miami, Florida. What's it like being a traveling nurse? I mean, what are the challenges and perhaps even rewards? Um, I think the rewards definitely you learn new things everywhere you go. Every state operates differently. Every hospital system operates differently. And I think that there are things that you can take away from every single assignment from every nurse you work with. Um, I worked with different nurses from all over the world in both places um, and here in St. Paul. So I think there's just always a lot of education you can take in. The challenge is um, you don't get a lot of orientation. You get an hour, maybe two, and you're just going at it. And I think, you know, ER nursing is ER nursing. You need to you need to keep people stable. You need to do your job and you know how to do that well. Um, so it's just kind of a matter of where are things and how do things operate here versus other hospitals. But um, it's a learning experience, but I think it's worth it. Now let's talk about the vaccine. They are being distributed as we speak. Frontline workers first in line to get that shot. So how are you feeling about this? And will traveling nurses be prioritized at hospitals where they're currently working? You know, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, I, I'm, I live in Minnesota, so I'm actually where I live right now. Um, and so I know that my home hospital is getting the vaccine for healthcare workers. I don't know if travel nurses will be prioritized, but I know healthcare workers will be. Um, how I feel about that, I think that it is a good thing to offer it to healthcare workers first. Um, if they opt to take it, I think that they are exposed to it every single day. Um, you never know until they're tested whether or not a patient has it. And especially in the emergency room, I think that they're coming in the door from outside. So I think that it is, it's nice to have that as a priority. Oh, hopefully you can get that vaccine real soon. Thank you so much once again for everything that you've done and you currently uh, do for so many people. Registered nurse, Lizeth de Gracia. Take care. Thank you. 
And turning now to Washington, President-elect Joe Biden is expected to be confirmed as the 46th president of the United States today. Electors from all 50 states and Washington, D.C. are casting ballots in a constitutional ritual that rarely draws attention. However, this day takes on a stronger resonance as President Trump has yet to concede the election. Edwin Piti has the details from Washington, D.C. Edwin. Hi, Andrea. We have known for weeks that Joe Biden won the 2020 presidential election, but it is not official until today when the 538 members of the Electoral College vote to certify Joe Biden as the president-elect and Kamala Harris as vice president-elect. Electors are meeting in their respective states. They'll be submitting their votes in writing and then signing three copies of a certificate of the vote. The certified results will be sent here to the U.S. Senate, where they'll be counted by Congress on January once that happens, Biden will be inaugurated as the 46th president on January 20th at noon. President Trump, meanwhile, refuses to concede, even though he and his allies have lost nearly 50 cases since Election Day. And the Supreme Court refused to hear a Texas lawsuit that challenged votes in four battleground states. Trump tweeted, and I quote, the Supreme Court let us down no wisdom, no courage and his supporters agree with him. Thousands spent the weekend protesting here in Washington, D.C., and the rallies turned into civil unrest by nightfall. Four people were stabbed, one of them a police officer. Local authorities arrested 33 people for different offenses, such as assault and possession of prohibited weapons. The gatherings of mostly unmasked Trump supporters were intended as a show of force. And before going back to you, Andrea, Joe Biden is expected to address the nation tonight. This would be his first speech after the Electoral College certified him officially as president-elect. Live from Washington, D.C., back to you. Thank you, Edwin, for that. We will be watching tonight. And President Trump is furious with Attorney General William Barr and is considering replacing him. And that's according to a source familiar with the matter who says Trump raised the prospect of firing Barr during a meeting on Friday. The person says the AG helped conceal an investigation into Hunter Biden's taxes until after the election. Advisors have encouraged the president not to dismiss the Attorney General. Meanwhile, Barr is reportedly considering whether to resign. And the U.S. Commerce Department says it has been the victim of a data breach. It says the FBI and Homeland Security's Cyber Security and Infrastructure Security Agency are now investigating. The attack also includes the U.S. Treasury Department. The hackers are believed to be backed by Russia. They reportedly infiltrated through a malicious software update in a product from software company SolarWinds. A number of federal civilian agencies were using the tool SolarWinds Orion for network management. The agencies are urged to review their networks for any possible signs of a data breach. Early voting begins today for Georgia's highly anticipated runoff election, an election that will determine which party takes control of the Senate. The race has put two Republican incumbents, Senators David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, against Democratic challengers John Ossoff and the Reverend Raphael Warnock. If Ossoff and Warnock win, the Senate will be split 50-50, with Vice President-elect Kamala Harris having the power to cast a deciding vote. If Perdue and Leffler win, though the Republicans will hold a slim 52 to 48 majority. 
In other congressional news, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi is calling on the Veterans Affairs Secretary to resign. This comes after the Inspector General for the Department of Veterans Affairs reportedly recommended the prosecution of Secretary Robert Wilkie. Wilkie is accused of trying to discredit a House staff member who reportedly, she says, had been sexually assaulted at a VA facility in Washington. After the Inspector General's report, prosecutors reportedly did not think there was enough evidence to support charges, according to the Washington Post. Top Democrats have also accused Wilkie of misusing taxpayer funds to benefit President Trump's re-election campaign, a charge the VA denied. And the clock is ticking for Americans looking to sign up for health coverage under the federal government. Open enrollment in 36 states for healthcare.gov ends Tuesday. According to federal data, nearly 4 million people chose Obamacare plans as of December 5th. This enrollment takes place as the Supreme Court is considering the fate of the health reform law. The Trump administration and a group of Republican state attorneys are attempting to invalidate the Affordable Care Act. They say the individual mandate is unconstitutional after Congress trimmed the penalty for not having health care to nothing. Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh both said the law doesn't have to be thrown out entirely, even if a provision is found to be unconstitutional. And turning now to immigration, some recent good news for those who have temporary protected status. Luis Mejid explains from San Francisco. Freddie Ochoa is used to live with uncertainty. At least now he knows his temporary protective status will not end at the beginning of the new year. For now he feels relief. He has more time to keep on fighting. USCIS simply says on its webpage that TPS for about 330,000 Salvadorians, Nicaraguans and Hondurans has been extended until October. El Departamento de Seguridad Nacional Community organizers say the extension is automatic because the courts haven't made a final decision allowing President Trump to end or not the program. In El Salvador, in fact in most of Central America, they're celebrating. President Bukele says he supports any decision that helps his people. Freddy Ochoa hopes the new U.S. administration will finally find a permanent solution. In San Francisco, Luis Mejid. You news. The most recent migrant caravan has been stopped at the border between Guatemala and Mexico, and though facing enormous obstacles in their journey north, many say that the recent hurricanes that struck Central America have left them with little or nothing to lose. Andrew Peña explains. Look, here we're stranded. They won't let us through. This was the chaotic scene on the border between Honduras and Guatemala. After hundreds of Hondurans left the caravans last week headed for the United States, police started setting up roadblocks, asking them for documents. We are going to be detained here just for a test. They're asking us for passports. If we had a passport, gentlemen, we wouldn't need to come here. Authorities said that a COVID test was required for all migrants reaching the Guatemalan border in order to continue. Most people do not bring the COVID test, which is being demanded by the Guatemalan government, which means that even if they passed this checkpoint, they would be returned to the Guatemalan side. Many were upset at not being able to move freely in their own country. They say they lost everything during this summer's devastating hurricanes and have no money for a COVID test. The little we had accomplished by working over the years is now lost. So we have no reason to stay here. Rather, we have no food or jobs. 
Migrant caravans like this one will continue forming next year, says migrant rights advocate, as thousands of families are living in the streets or in shelters because of the pandemic and the hurricanes. And forgotten by the government, so this caravan was expected. And I think there will be many more to come because there's no clear response from the government to meet the demand of these families. Local media reported the arrest of a group of migrants that crossed the Guatemalan soil through blind spots. They'll be returned to Honduras. Reported in San Pedro Sula, Honduras, by Claudia Mendoza. This is Andrew Pena, U News. More of U News after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The effects of COVID-19 will be felt for decades to come. Both parties are very far apart. Approximately 250,000 people have lost their lives. Your news covers the news of your world. It makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. Your news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. In Mexico, mariachi culture is undergoing an acute crisis due to the coronavirus pandemic. And as musicians grow more desperate, some are offering virtual serenades in exchange for donations. Here's Paulina Gomez with that story. Music is no longer playing and the crowds are not coming to the world-famous Garibaldi Plaza in Mexico City, a heartbreaking scene due to the coronavirus pandemic. The main issue is that, and I understand because mariachi is not a basic need. Here, there are no temperature checks and no access to antibacterial gel. The lack of these preventive measures has left Garibaldi musicians in mourning. Unfortunately, the day before yesterday, two other friends died, even though they didn't believe in the virus. Around some 40 people have died. There are some 3,000 mariachis working at this plaza, but the majority are advanced in age and suffer from chronic diseases, yet they have no choice but to risk their lives to try to play here for $15 on a good day. Like 68-year-old Jose Manuel, who has played the violin at Garibaldi for 44 years. It is scary, so frightening, because I say to my wife, if I don't go to work, there's no money, so we have to risk a little. Mariachi was named an intangible cultural heritage by UNESCO in 2011, but it seems they have been forgotten. To overcome the crisis left by the coronavirus pandemic and prevent mariachis from disappearing, hundreds of musicians united in the Save the Mariachi group. Joining their voices in concerts or protests, they ask authorities for social programs to help them through this crisis and also to get by and generate work through Salvemos al Mariachi, an online platform they use to take a piece of Mexico everywhere. We exchange songs for donations and the donations are from 12 to $350 and that is a 360 concert dedicated to that person. Catalina is one of the five mariachis from Garibaldi that has survived thanks to those virtual concerts. People have donated even from the other side of the world and those donations are given to those of us who sing in the videos. Saving the mariachi group also helps to raise awareness giving away free masks and hand sanitizer among the musicians. Paulina Gomez Bulchiner in Mexico City, U News.
Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.